0: Have some information for you. I want to share with you this morning. I I looked up some some numbers. I asked last week how many people there were in Caldwell County, and somebody in here said eighty thousand, and they uh, that's pretty much it. Um, I found out uh, it's it's about eighty three thousand is the population of Caldwell County, and and I, I was curious about some church statistics in Caldwell County, so let to share those with you right now. Uh, I found that about forty eight. 1,000 people in Caldwell County are affiliated with church. That's 61%. 61% of our county population affiliated with church. That doesn't mean they attend church. It means they're affiliated with church. You know what that means? That's the Christmas and Easter, you know, they go to church, or somebody in their family gets baptized, or they were a member of the church, they joined the church, but they maybe don't attend, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, those are the people that show up when it's time to vote on something, that kind of stuff. And uh, um, nobody's laughing. Has nobody experienced that before? <laughs> Have you? I mean, Becky, you've experienced this, right? You know what I'm talking about. People that, okay, they show up to vote when there's some kind of big deal. Um, so 61% are affiliated with church. And of the church-affiliated folks, 76% of them are Southern Baptist. Now, I told you guys last week that we're a Southern Baptist church. Some of you didn't know that and about fell out of your chair. Um, this ain't your grandma's Baptist church. I'm just here to tell you. And, uh, if you hadn't figured that out by, by the, I don't know. I, we got some, we got some rocking grandmas in this church. I shouldn't say that. We got some rocking grandmas. I'm just telling you. Ladies in first service, ladies in first service that greet at the doors and everything, they're always back there with their hands up and just singing the loudest. They're awesome. But, uh, uh, 76% of the churches in, or the people that are church affiliated in Caldwell County are Southern Baptists. The next highest percentage is 11%, and those are Methodists. So um, you really probably do beat them to the restaurants every Sunday because there's more of you. And then the other 13%, it just said other. All the other denominations in in Caldwell County combined make up the remaining 13% in very small numbers. Now. Um, Something else is interesting is I found out there's 139 churches in this county. And of the 139, about 105, I guess, are probably, um, I don't have an exact number, but I, th- I think it was 105 that are SBC churches. Now, uh, the reason uh, for all that is just to share the information and give you some perspective here for a moment. I, I thought about if, if only 61% are affiliated with church, how many people would have to be in church on Sunday, in each church on Sunday morning if we were to get 100% church attendance for Caldwell County on a Sunday morning? Anybody got a guess? What? How many, to get 100% Caldwell County attendance, huh? It's 600. 600 people. If 600 people would come to day three and 600 people would go to First Baptist, Granite Falls, and 600 people would go to whatever, all these different churches in the area. If every church had 600 people in it from Caldwell County, we would have the entire county in church on a Sunday morning. Does that sound like an attainable goal, you think, that we could get 600 people in this place? Do you think we ought to be trying to do that maybe? I think it's important. Um, Now, but this is why I bring up the statistics. I found myself wondering, out of the 105 churches that are SBC in the 139 churches in the county. How many of those churches started from a church split? Now that I don't have information for. But my guess is it's probably pretty high, at least in the Southern Baptist. Um, is it, and you don't have to answer this out loud, but, but just think, if you've experienced a church split, you know what I'm talking about. But it's a very painful thing. And and sometimes there are some real serious issues that need to be dealt with. And sometimes we have to come to a place where, as a body of believers, we say, no, you know what, here's the line, and this is non-negotiable, and it's a doctrinal issue, and we got to stand on it. And if we can't agree on it, then we're going to have to part ways. That's okay. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with people drawing their doctrinal lines and saying this is what we believe to be the truth of Scripture In such, and, and this is so important that it's non-negotiable and we're just going to have to agree to disagree and that means we're going to part ways. I have no problem with that. Here's what I have a problem with. My guess is that most of the splits that have happened in churches, not just in Caldwell County but in any county in North Carolina, probably had very little to do with anything doctrinal in nature. And no matter what religious terms he got worded in for the for this event to finally take place, somewhere really what it came down to was somebody had control or somebody else wanted control from that person or somebody got mad because, you know, my great-grandfather helped build this sanctuary and I really don't like the idea of building a new facility. Because I we because my great grandfather built this this sanctuary and, and we shouldn't let it go to waste. Or or somebody got mad in a business meeting because we spent too much money on toilet paper or something like that. And so then they had it out for the church secretary or whoever was signing the checks for the custodians, or or, or somebody decided that we don't no we don't want red carpet in the new sanctuary. We want green carpet. Well, no, we don't want green carpet and we don't want red carpet. We want blue carpet. Well we don't want carpet at all. We want hardwood floors. And then everybody is all upset and then people start fighting about the silliest stupidest things and eventually it becomes something so big that everybody's talking about oh well it's about this and this person's trying to control and this person's trying to do that and the real issue is that somebody didn't get their way and so they started something anybody know what i'm talking about You know what James chapter four says. James chapter four says, "What is it that causes quarrels among you? Is it not your own selfish desires that wage war within you?" So, here's what I here's what I have been amazed by in my years in ministry. I have been a pastor for twelve years now. I've been ordained for about eight years. Eight or nine. I've been in ministry for much longer than that. Before I was in pastoral ministry, I was in youth ministry. Before I was in youth ministry, I was in college outreach ministry. And and I I have seen so many things happen. I did not grow up in church. So when I got saved, I I got saved for real. Okay? It wasn't like, Jesus loves me, this I know because my mommy told me so, and I had to go to church every day. It wasn't that. It was, I, I got saved. I mean, God... Did something incredible, and there was no holding it back. There was no stopping it. There was no denying it. It was like I, I don't know what changed. I can't tell you what changed. I remember trying to witness to a, to a friend of mine uh, that I played music with, and I, and I remember I didn't know how I was supposed to do that, and I just somebody said, "Well, just tell him, you know, just tell him what happened to you." And so all I could go was, uh, "Well, you know, I used to cuss a lot, and I don't do that much anymore." And and well. So, well, so I used to smoke and I don't anymore. So, well, and I used to tell a lot of lies and I and I don't tell so many anymore. So, and I will never forget, this is what he said to me. He said, John, that's like saying that I murdered 10 people and you only murdered seven. So somehow that makes you better than me. I didn't know what to say to that. But <laughs> the point is, I was trying to share my faith the only way I knew how. I mean, all I knew how to tell him was, this is what happened. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answers, right? But something really changed in me. And so when I saw conflict happening in the church, the first time I saw this, this petty, backbiting stuff going on, I, I thought, where, where am I? What? Well, I, I thought, Church people were different than this. I mean, didn't Jesus say they will know you by your love for one another? What, what is this? And then at the longer I was involved in church, the more I realized that's just kind of the way we operate. God forbid. I was flabbergasted. So as I went through ministry, I did everything the wrong way (laughs) and I still do plenty the wrong way. But I learned from my mistakes. I told you last week, we only learn by two ways, right? We learn from our own mistakes or the mistakes of others. I made plenty of mistakes. I made plenty of mistakes in this area of resolving conflict. I I didn't know how to handle this in a biblical way. As a matter of fact, nobody had ever demonstrated it to me or explained it to me. Because all I ever saw was, was the fighting. Once, you know, once you got to the point where you could see it. And so it, it really turns turns people off. And everybody in here probably has a story, and we could go around the room and take up about ten services, everybody sharing their story of all the things they've experienced. Here's the thing. We need, as followers of Christ, to have a clear understanding of what God would want us to do when it comes to handling conflict. Some conflict is over an issue of sin, and some conflict is over an issue of preference. And some conflict is over just pure offense. People's feelings get hurt or they get angry. It may not even be a sin issue. It may be a personality conflict. But nonetheless, conflict happens. And it's inevitable. If you're alive and breathing, here's how you know know that conflict is going to happen in some relationship in your life. Pinch yourself. Do you feel it? Put your hand in front of your nose, in front of your mouth. Do you feel air moving? Okay, you're going to have conflict in a relationship because you're alive on planet Earth with other people. By the way, I've heard somebody say many times before, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you will screw it up. Okay? Don't join it. Guys, we are all this way. And we need to understand how to handle conflict because the last thing we need to do is misrepresent our Lord and Savior to the rest of this world. When the outside world looks in and they see how we behave, they don't see what Jesus said about why we would be known as His disciples. And so what we need to do is we need to figure out how to do that well. What I want to do today is I want to share with you what I've learned from the Scriptures over the years in my experiences in ministry about how to handle conflict in a way that honors God. And and I'm not going to say that I've got all the answers because I don't. I'm not going to say that I have this down perfectly. You may see me fail at this in the next two weeks. But this is what I've learned and I believe this to be true from the Scripture. And as a matter of fact, I'm really not concerned about what John thinks. I'm really concerned about what God says. Because quite honestly, I've messed up plenty of relationships doing it my way. So, let's read this passage together. I want to I look at, really, this is kind of the quintessential passage on... Conflict within the body of Christ. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. And I'm going to read this. And I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we read the Word of God out of reverence for God's Word. We don't always do this, but I, I just felt the need to this morning. Stand out of reverence for God's Word, please. And I'm going to read this passage. You can read along with me um, uh, silently at, at where you are. But Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You, Lord, that it contains all the answers we need for life. I pray this morning that You would bless the reading and the studying of Your Word, and that You would help us to apply it in such a way that we can bring glory and honor to Your Son. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So what about this passage? is so important. I'm going to jump right in because I've got six points and then we've got some sub-elements in there. We're going to break this passage down and we're going to introduce a lot of other passages as well. But I want to give you an overview of the things that the Scripture teaches about how we deal with conflict. I told you before that conflict is, is something that's inevitable. As a matter of fact, conflict is not negative. Now, that's going to come as a revelation to a lot of you. Conflict is not negative. Conflict is not positive. Conflict is neutral. And we have it in our mindset in Western culture, especially in the South and in church, that somehow, if there's conflict, it's negative. Now, and I thought that way for so long, and I still have to tell myself that Sometimes when conflicts happens, I have to remind myself, this is not negative. And I try to figure out why is it that I think of conflict as negative. And here, here is why I believe that we see conflict as negative. Because when we have conflict, we have negative emotions that rise up in us. We get angry. We get hurt. We get sad. We get offended. And when we get upset by those things, we have those negative emotions. We think, well, those, if they're, those emotions feel bad, so it must be bad. And Christians aren't supposed to have conflict. Christians are supposed to be nice, right? So to the point that in the South, when we talk to people, we say, hey, how you doing? How's your family doing, Lynn? Good to see you. Yeah, how's things going? Was last weekend good for you? Did you guys have a good trip? You know, and all this. And we ask all these questions and we don't listen to any of the answers. And we don't care. I don't care about Lynn's trip. I don't care how work's going. I'm just doing the obligatory conversation. Like I've gone through all the questions. I said, hello, how you doing? I look like I love you. Now I'm walking on to the next person. Right, That's what we do. We cannot even just say hey when we walk past somebody on the street. We have to say, hey, how you doing? Even if we don't wait for an answer, we just say, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? And we keep on going. We we don't care. But somehow we got to be nice. Right? Because Christians are nice. Right? Let me tell you about Jesus. Did Jesus ever get angry? Yeah. So do you think anger is a sin? What? No? So how come when we get angry, we think... Somehow that's negative, that we've sinned. Right? Because it feels bad. The key is not whether or not you get angry. The key is what you do with your anger. Okay? The Bible says be angry and sin not. Jesus, as a matter of fact, when He was angry one time, went into the church... And yelled and screamed at everybody and cracked a whip literally and turned over the tables and destroyed everything. I'd say he was at, he was pretty mad. Right? That's an understatement. It, anger is not a sin. Jesus did not sin. And Jesus was angry. So we know anger is not a sin. What we've got to do is understand that conflict is neutral. Let me give you an example. I forgot my knife sharpener today. I meant to bring it. But I want to show you this. Here's my pocket knife. I'm going to pretend this pen is my knife sharpener. Um, this knife is a tool. It's covered in pocket lint right now. But this knife is a tool. It's, it's meant to be a precision instrument. In order for this thing to be usable and effective, it needs to have a sharp blade. How do I sharpen the blade? I apply pressure between it and the sharpener. Conflict, friction, right? And the result of that friction and that conflict is a positive result. It's a sharpened blade, a useful instrument. If I apply conflict correctly. However, I can take the same two instruments and the same conflict and put a little twist on it. And if I do this, what happens? It dulls the blade. All the guys are going, You would never do that to my knife. Would you? It dulls the blade. Same conflict, same pressure, same two tools. Negative result. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible says that conflict is to sharpen us so we can be more effective for Christ. Here is what the Scripture says in Proverbs 27, 17. 2717 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Do you know that God's intention is to use conflict in your life to make you like Christ? To use conflict in your life to make you more useful for His kingdom? This is key. So the first thing we need to do is understand the opportunity. Conflict is not negative. Conflict is an opportunity. It can be positive or negative depending on how we handle it, but it is an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for Christ-likeness to be worked out in our lives. It's an opportunity for somebody else's life to be molded into the form of Christ. But conflict is an opportunity. So we need to understand that first. The second thing we need to understand is that we need to address it immediately. Let's look at this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. It says, so if you are offering your gift, this is Jesus teaching, by the way, and he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know what Jesus is saying here? I mean, you gotta listen to his heart and apply it to the common day. We don't go and offer sacrifices at the altar today. Not, not animal sacrifices and we don't, we don't have the same, the same system in place in our, in our worship today because of what Christ has done. But listen to the heart and the purpose behind what he's saying. Jesus is saying that you will, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Okay? Say it with me. Your love for one another. That's what Jesus said. So He says to them, if you are in church and you remember that there's an issue that is unresolved between you and your fellow believer, don't give your tithe. Don't give your singing and your worship. Don't don't serve... On the worship team or in the parking ministry or in the children's ministry or teaching or preaching or anything else. Don't do those things. If there's an issue, you leave all that behind and go and first be reconciled to your brother. Because Jesus put a higher priority on relationship than on anything else. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that Jesus' ministry, his entire ministry, was the ministry of reconciliation. He came to reconcile man to God the Father. And when, when that passage said that where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Do you know how many times we misrepresent that passage? We always say, oh, well, there's just two of us. So, Callie, we're going to pray and God is here because there's two of us gathered in his name. That, 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 I, listen, God's there if it's just you praying. Okay. That's not the point of that passage. The point of the passage is Jesus kept saying, and again I say to you, if two or more are gathered, and again I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. He's talking about the same thing again and again and again. And what he's talking about is this idea that, look, if you are about my business, which is reconciliation, then whenever two or more are gathered for that purpose... I'm there in the midst. When there's conflict, as long as you're working toward restoration, I'm there. That's what that passage means. So Matthew 25, says, Jesus says, you need to go and address it immediately. He put a higher priority on the relationships. But I want to say this to you, though. Be careful. we got to learn to be wise as believers in how and when we address these things. You know, sometimes there's not really a need to talk to a person about an issue. I told you before that some conflict comes from sin and some conflict comes from personality clashes and some conflict just comes from pure offense. Who knows what causes it? You know, maybe you're just crazy and I didn't do anything and you're mad, right? It could be anything, okay? Maybe I'm crazy. I probably am. But the issue is that we have to We have to realize that sometimes it's just not a wise thing to do. I mean, really, if you're struggling with lust and you lust after someone, do you really need to go and confess it to that person and say, I'm sorry, I need to ask your forgiveness. I've been lusting after you. That's probably not pretty wise, right? Because then some spouse is going to get really ticked off, right? That could be a big problem. And sometimes we get offended with people and they don't even know it. They didn't intend to do anything to offend us. And their heart is perfectly clear before the Lord, and we're the ones that are in bondage. And we're struggling. If I got an issue with Joel, and Joel has no clue I got an issue with him, and I'm the one dealing with it, sometimes it's just something I need to deal with between me and God. And I still think it's the same principle. Go and take care of that first. Go away from all that other stuff and get right with God and say, God, look, I'm dealing with bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and, and I need you to help me. And, and I'm going to choose to do this the right way. I'm going to choose to let it go. Sometimes we need to learn that we need to let go. I want you to look at this passage, Proverbs 19, 11. A person's wisdom yields patience. I'm going to stop right there. A person's wisdom yields patience. Now, listen... Imagine yourself in the scenario I just described. And instead of going to the person, instead of saying things maybe you shouldn't say or reacting in ways you shouldn't react, if you were to hold that back and deal with that privately between you and the Lord, you think that's wisdom? I think that's wisdom. And it yields patience. Do you know what patience is? I mean, do you know what the King James word for patience is? This word that's translated patience in the King James Long-suffering. That's what patience is. Suffering long. Sounds real fun, doesn't it? Absolutely not, but it sounds very Christ-like. person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. That's hard to do sometimes. This is the measure that... The conclusion I came to when I struggled with how do I figure... And this is still what I ask myself. I, I have to remind myself that there are times when I need to address it with the person and there's times when I don't need to address it with the person. And this is what I use. If it's not worth talking face-to-face, then it's not worth being or staying offended. If I'm not willing to go and talk to the person, then I really need to figure out, am I being petty or is this something I just need to deal with myself because I... I'm the one with the problem. And maybe, maybe they did something wrong, and I need to forgive. But if their heart's clear, maybe it's just me. If I'm not willing to address it face-to-face, then it's not worth being offended or staying offended over. And so that's the measure we ought to use, I think. So you either need to address it immediately or let it go. Either way, you deal with it now. The third thing is we need to focus on the problem, not the person. Focus on the problem, not the person. And there's several parts to this, so we're going to break this down. How do we focus on the problem, not the person? The first thing is we got to learn to deal with the sin issue or the personal offense at hand. Sometimes you do need to go to a person and deal with it. And when you do, you're going to deal with the sin or the offense. You're not going to deal with anything else. Isn't it just like us as human beings? I know this about you guys because I know about me. Okay? Isn't it just like us as human beings to be mad or hurt about something, and start off talking about what you did to me, Scott, and that just really hurt me, and by the way, you know what, yesterday you did this, and you know what, as a matter of fact, two months ago you did this, Scott, and you know, I've just really been ticked off with you for the past three years, because I'm just tired of the way you always, and we get into everything else, except what the issue is. And that takes us into the next part of the problem, First of all, it says go and tell him his fault. Okay, so you're dealing with the fault. The next part of this is that we, when we focus on the problem, not the person, is we need to learn not to attack the person. Because we start getting into the blame game. Well, this is your fault. You did this, and you are wrong, and I am right, and I'm innocent. And that's how we act as human beings. That's just natural. And, and so we've got to learn not to attack the person. The person is not your enemy. They're your brother or your sister in Christ. Amen? The person is not your enemy. Who is our enemy? Satan. What is he trying to do in the church? Does he want the church to succeed? No. Does he want us to love each other unconditionally? No. Do you think if Jesus said, you'll be known by your love for one another, that Satan's going to go, oh, well, I lost. He's going to attack that very thing. He does not want us to be known by our love for one another. We have to be diligent. We don't need to attack the person and blame the person. Proverbs 13, verses 1 through 3 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is that true for you? It it is for me. If you come at me aggressively on something, I'm more likely to get aggressive in response. I think that's just natural. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. (laughs) That sounds like me too, you know? I get mad and I open my mouth and a lot of folly comes out. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You know what that last verse is saying? Hey, look, do the good thing. It's hard, but it's good. So do the hard thing because it's good. Don't do the easy thing. That's bad. And don't worry about it because the eyes of God see all the good that's being done and all the evil that's being done. And he's the only one you got to worry about answering to. Amen? Okay, so we don't attack the person. And the next thing we've got to understand is we've got to seek the restoration as our, our ultimate goal. Restoration is the point. What do we say the ministry of Jesus was about? Reconciling God to man. And then also within the body of Christ, He's reconciling us to one another. We're part of a family now. I mean, how many parents... I mean, don't, don't you parents make your kids work things out Don't you want them to, you know, hug and make up and all that kind of stuff? Like, don't fight all the time. I understand you get irritated with your brother. I understand you get irritated with your sister. But guess what? That's your brother. That's your sister. You need to love them because I told you to, (laughs) right? And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is like, you need to love your brother because I told you to. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you feel like loving your brother. It's a command. It's like when mama says, or else, you know, you better move. And 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 you don't want her to count because then you're in trouble. So seek restoration as the ultimate goal. Here's what Galatians six one says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, what's a transgression? Sin. All right. If anyone's caught in any transgression, who you who are spiritual Oh you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And Paul's Paul's kinda kinda appealing to their pride a little bit, and saying, if you're spiritual, if you're mature, if you're a mature believer, you'll do the right thing first. Restore them in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Restoration is a purpose. And then the warning, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You know, you probably all heard that people say, but for the grace of God, there go I... And this is the idea. You know, how many times have we been offended with somebody for doing something to us that we've done to someone else? Uh, guilty. And it's a whole harder to say it in a mean way. And so Paul is saying look, purpose is restoration. Approach people with gentleness and watch yourself lest you be tempted. And then we need to strive for unity. not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, we need to strive for unity. This is really kind of the context of what he's saying, the heart of what he's saying. He's saying, look, if this Jesus thing is real, like if you really are followers of him, if the Holy Spirit really is active in your life, if you really believe what you say you believe, and, and, and this church thing isn't just church, it's real, then just do me a favor and act like it. Strive for unity. Strive that the words of Jesus would not be in vain, that we would be known that we're His disciples by our... Love for one another. That's really what he's saying here. Strive for unity. Unity's hard work. Anybody who's been married knows unity is hard work. Amen? Amen. Unity is hard work. And you know, sometimes it's impossible to be unified. Sometimes you, gotta, sometimes you do everything you can do, and the best you can do is, is to say, you know, we agree to disagree. And if that's the case, that's okay, as long as we do this next thing, Romans twelve eighteen. If, If it is possible, as far as it depends on who? You live at peace with everyone. The command here is, look, as far as you are able to do it, you need to be at peace with people. You don't have to be in agreement on everything, but... If you're not in agreement, you can still live in peace with people. We can be at peace with people. So, as far as it's up to you, now listen. You can't control anybody else's behavior. You can't control anybody's choices. You can't control anybody's emotions. You're not responsible for anybody else except you. And I'm not responsible for anybody else but me. Is anybody in here willing to answer for me on on the day of judgment? Not your place. You can't do it. No more than I can answer for you. And so you may do the right thing and be long-suffering in your wisdom and experience great pain and never achieve unity. And as far as it is up to you, you need to live at peace with those people. That's your part. Their part is the same for them. And if they're not doing it, God sees the evil and the good. Don't worry about it. Right? So focus on the problem, not the person. The next thing is we need to follow God's instructions. And what I mean right there is is that really God's laid out a process in Matthew 18. He's given us really some 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 guidelines, some criteria. And this was really helpful for me because... I'm that, you know, analytical person. Give me a, give me a flow chart, right? Tell me if A, then B. If B, then C. If C doesn't work, go back to A. If A doesn't work, then, then go to F and Q. And, 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 but here's the chart. And these are your steps. Give me the steps. Cause, see, I was a math teacher for almost 10 years. And that's how my brain works. It's like, give me the formula, I'll plug in the numbers, and I'll get the right answer. That's what I want. Give me the the steps, because I know if I just plug the right things in, I'll get the right answers. It doesn't always work that way, by the way, in life. But but that's what I like, is the list of steps. And so this is what Matthew 18 teaches. First of all, in verse 15, it says that we should go personally. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Him. Now, I want to stop here for a minute because I want to say something I think is really important for church people to understand. Because I know, I, I know you will never believe this, but it really happens. Some people think that going and telling a person and dealing with this Matthew 18 step can be done with an email. Some people think it can be done with a um, text message. Some people think it can be done with a voicemail And I know that those things didn't exist in Jesus' day, but I think at the heart of what he's saying, that he would say to us, no, that, no, that's not what I said. I said, go and tell. If you can do it face to face, that is the way to do it. And if, you, and if you can't, phone call is fine, but don't leave it on a message. Face-to-face is really what Jesus is talking about here. This is important, people, because, look, I'm confessing, this is Confessions of a Pastor this morning. I have made this mistake many times. And I'll tell you what I know is going to be true for you because I know it was true for me, and I also know what I've seen in other people's lives as I've dealt with things for 12 years in ministry. I will tell you, this is what happens. I get offended, and I decide I'm going to address you on this offense, because it's so important. I can't let it go. I'm going to follow Matthew 18. I'm going to do step one. I'm going to go and tell her. It's late at night. My schedule's busy the next day. And I, it's, just, it's just too inconvenient to try to arrange a meeting. I know. I'll, I'll send an email. So I type up my email and I get it all ready. And I'm like, okay, I need to read it and figure out if it's okay to send before I hit send. Hopefully you do that. I've done plenty of people that didn't. And and you read over it and you go, ah, it sounds a little harsh. It's not, I didn't mean it sound that way. So I'm going to change it and edit it. And, and you do that and you read over it again. And you, maybe you edit it a few times. And then when you're done, you go, yeah, that's good. And you send it on. Let me tell you, don't ever do that, first of all. Okay, just just don't. Just no emails. No emails. Okay? At the very least, ask your wife. Okay, she will tell you, don't send that, please. Don't send that. No emails, because what happens is when the person reads the email, they don't hear your inflection. They don't see your facial expressions. They don't observe your body language. And they don't know how rude you were the first time and how many revisions you went to to be this nice. They don't know that. You do, but they don't know. And all they know is the words they see on the screen and how they feel when they read it. And if you've ever gotten one of those emails, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, the nerve of them. What a jerk. Those church people. I can't believe people in church would act this way. If you've not experienced this, just wait. Send an email, and you'll find out. (laughs) Send an email. it's, It's not good. Personally, go and tell somebody. Second of all, privately, verse 15 says, between you and him alone. Alone. Third thing, respectfully, verse 15, tell him his fault. You know, look, that alone thing has a lot to do with the respect thing. Because if I confront you on an issue in front of other people, no matter how many nice words I use, you think you get upset. If if you perceive that I'm criticizing you or faulting you in front of other people, you'll get upset. Even if I didn't mean to, I may not even be confronting you. I might just be having a conversation, not realize how how it came across to you. Maybe nobody else in the room took it the way you took it, but you did, and you get offended, or the other way around. I can get offended. And everybody goes, what's his problem? Why is he so upset? Because when we do it in front of other people, it's not respectful. It shames people. It embarrasses people. And yet we do that. And so we need to be respectful and go privately. And then the next thing we need to do is understand that Jesus is teaching that we go repeatedly. He lays out a three-step process, which some people take it as literally three steps. I believe it's, mo- it's more than three steps, but it's three levels. And the first one is one-on-one. Try and go work it out one-on-one. Because, look, sometimes... You ever had a problem with your spouse or your kids that took more than one discussion to work it out? If it didn't work out the first discussion, did you immediately go to a counselor? No. If it doesn't work out the first time, do you immediately go to the pastor? No. If your kids can't agree on something the first time, do you tell them, okay, well now it's time for me to step in? Probably we do more often than we should, honestly. That's something we're working on in our home. The, the deal is we're supposed to go and do it one-on-one respectfully so that, and, and try to work it out. And if that can't be worked out, then we go to the next level, which is number five, include accountability. Verse 16 says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, here's another thing. I, I know I'm, I'm, this is like spoiler alert. I know I'm really bursting your bubble this morning. You probably are not going to believe this because I know you guys are not this way. And I know that nobody in your family is this way. And I know that probably none of the people you've ever been in church with are this way. But I've got to tell you something because it really is true. I'm going to let you in on a little secret church people will lie and they will lie about you and they'll do it to other people behind your back. They will. They will. And if you don't think it's true, just look, look at your own life and see, Oh, have I ever done that? Cause you probably have. Cause I probably have. We, we will, we will lie to people. And you know, there's some people out there, um, This may sound amazing, but I have had pastors lie about me publicly and change their story with everybody they talk to. Can you believe that church people would do that? Can you believe that pastors would do that? Now, I'm not saying that that's excusable. That's not excusable, especially not for a man of God. But what I'm saying to you is it happens. And so Jesus says, look, if you can't work it out one-on-one, you need to go to that person with somebody else so that every word can be established. There are some people, guys, that I just won't meet with without a third party. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but there are just some people that it's like, look, I've tried to work this out with you. I, 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 I'm willing to work this out with you, but there's going to be a mediator. And if they're not in agreement with that, you can't make them do it. You just say, Okay. That's as far as I can go. I mean, really. So, include accountability. And the last part of that, last step is appeal to authority when necessary. What Jesus said in 17, verse 17, was if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Now, some people think, have interpreted that over the years as, you know, you, you need to, publicly expose somebody's sin in the church service on Sunday morning and they have to repent in front of everybody. And I'm not saying there's not a time for that or, or a reason that maybe that's okay sometimes, but I think that that's generally not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, look, you know, at some point you need somebody else to step in. Sometimes you need accountability. You just need other people there to see that you're trying to work this out. And and that they're they're being unresponsive, but sometimes you need somebody to step in Uh, in in your home when it gets to that point with your kids. Don't isn't that when mom and dad are supposed to come in and say, "Okay, look, you guys have had opportunity to work this out. You can't work this out now. I'm dealing with it. This is what needs to happen." At at, in the church, it's the same way. I, I think that. When there's an issue like that between believers and it can't get worked out, that's when you go to one of the pastors or you go to a deacon or you go to your leadership team people and you go, look, there's an issue and I really need some help because I don't know what to do. And then that process might take several meetings. It's not a one-time thing. Okay? And at work, how do you apply this? At work, who would be the authority? Your boss, your supervisor, right? So if you can't... so. I mean if you go to your boss or your supervisor about a coworker before you ever talk to the coworker, do you think that's gonna be good? Well, that's probably not gonna be a good working environment. Okay? So go to them personally. Try to resolve it personally. If you can't, then go through the process and go to your boss and say, Look, this is the issue and I'm not really sure what to do. If it's a problem in your marriage, do the same thing. And then at this point, you say, you know, okay, let's go see the pastor. Or let's go see a counselor. Let's go, let's go get some help. That's the idea here. All right? So that's the process. We need to follow God's instructions. The fifth thing that we need to do is we need to be quick to forgive. Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter said, Lord, how often, how often should I forgive when my brother sins against me? And then he asks, as many as seven times? but And what he's really saying is, look, the Pharisees and the religious teachers have all been teaching us for a long time, seven times. Forgive them, seven times. and And so he's saying, how often should I do it? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. Some translations say seventy times seven. That'd be four hundred and ninety times. Jesus is using a literary device called hyperbole. It's extreme. It means extreme exaggeration. He's using that literary device to say, "Look, here's the deal. It's not seven times. It's basically all the time. All the time. As a matter of fact, in Luke 17, talking to another uh, in another situation." Luke 17, he says, and that should be verse 3 and 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I don't know about you guys, but if somebody comes to me seven times in the same day for the same thing and says, sorry, John, will you forgive me? By about seventh time, I think I'd be saying, uh, no, I'm done with you. I'm done. That's enough. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Because that's me. That's John. That's the flesh. And Jesus says, no. He repents. If he asks forgiveness. You have to. Why? Because aren't you so glad that God doesn't turn us away. When we go to Him seven times a day for the same sin, saying, Lord, I failed again. Please forgive me. Imagine, imagine if His grace got cut off for even one day. Where would we be? And Jesus said, look, If you belong to me, your ministry is the same ministry as mine, reconciliation. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Forgive. We have to be quick to forgive. And the last thing is we have to love unconditionally. Colossians 3, 12 through 15 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Doesn't this kind of sum up everything we've talked about? Unity and gentleness, compassion and humility and righteousness, and handle it in the right way, and forgive. Our job is to represent Jesus the best we can. We're going to fail. We're going to fail. Just count on it. But thank the Lord that He forgives us when we confess and ask for forgiveness. And thank the Lord that He loves us unconditionally. Don't you love your kids unconditionally, parents? They might make you angry enough to bite the head off of a hammer or something. you know. Just, they might just drive you crazy sometimes. But you still love them. And don't let anybody do anything to harm them. Because all that anger you have towards them at that moment, as soon as it comes from somebody else, mama bear comes out. Papa bear comes out. You don't speak to my kid that way. You don't look at my kid that way. You don't touch my kid that way. As we love him. No matter what. You know, there's a passage, I wish I could remember the reference. It's an Old Testament reference. But it says that in the Old Testament that the Lord is a dread warrior. And it talks about him coming to the rescue of his children. Did you know that God feels about you that way? don't let anybody go after my kid. Don't let anybody go after my kid. That's how God feels about us. And we're supposed to love unconditionally. Now look, I want to say this one more thing about loving unconditionally because I think it's really important that we understand we can love even when problems don't get resolved. And we should. The problem, even if it doesn't get resolved, doesn't mean that we don't have to love, but it, do, it may mean sometimes that we have to set boundaries. If you've ever had a loved one, family member, a friend who's dealt with addiction, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes, sometimes you have to say I love you by setting boundaries. Sometimes you have to go, you know what? I forgive you and I love you, but from now on this is the line. And we're not crossing it. And I know it's hard to believe that the Bible would teach such a thing, but it does. It does. And sometimes that's an act of love for the other person. If you're dealing with a person who has a substance addiction, that act of, that's, that's an act of love saying, you know what, I love you and I forgive you and I will never stop loving you and I will always forgive you when you mess up. But here's the deal. If you cross that line again... I'm not going to bail you out because I love you. I'm going to let you experience the consequences of your own behavior because I love you. Or you say to a brother or sister in Christ that has a chronic problem with lying, I love you and I forgive you, but I'm drawing the line right here. I cannot be associated with you. And you think, that's not nice. That's not Christian because it's not nice. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good, but take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. What is that letter? It's a part of the Word of God. The instruction from the Word of God. If they are disobedient to the instruction of the Word of God, what does He say to do? Do not associate with them. For what reason? In order that they may feel ashamed. Are you, are you serious that Jesus would want me to withdraw from a relationship and allow that person to experience shame? Absolutely. Because that conflict is intended for their holiness. And they get to choose what twist they put on the situation. And you get to choose what twist you put on the situation. If you do it right, they may still do it wrong. And when they do it wrong, they need to experience the blunt edge that it results. So the Bible says, disassociate. Let them feel shame. Let them experience the consequence of their sin. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy. That's loving. That's tough, but it's loving. Don't regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. I would even say, warn them as you would your children. I was doing counseling for a couple uh, recently, and I had to be very blunt with them. There's nobody around here, so you don't know them. Don't worry about it. But I had to be very blunt with them, and I had to just say, Look, I am saying to you what I would say to my daughter or my son if they were sitting in front of me. And if I did not say it to my kids, I would be a bad father. And if I don't say it to you, I would be a bad pastor. I have to tell you the truth because I love you. And I'm warning you, if you don't, then you will experience. Don't do it because I'm wanting to shame you. I'm doing it because I love you. And that's what God tells us to do. Here's some other verses, if you're not convinced, that tell you about people not to associate with. There's quotes around these. They're not quotes from the Scripture. They're they're, they're paraphrases. But 1 Corinthians 5 tells us not to associate with those who call themselves believers, that, but live in unrepentant, immoral lifestyles. Not to associate with them. Um, Proverbs 22 tells us not to make friends with people who are quick-tempered. Don't be friends with a hothead. That's basically what it says. Psalm 26 says don't associate with people who are deceitful and lying and hypocritical. Hypocrites, by the way, are not people who fail. They're not people who m- make mistakes in areas that, you know, they, I believe this is a sin and yet I've done it. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is a pretender, a deceiver. So those are some other examples. Let me say this one last thing before we go to the invitation. If we do this, here's the promise from the Lord. James chapter 3, verse 18 says, Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, I want to explain to you, in case you don't know, the difference between sowing, and, re- and, sowing and, and planting. Planting is when you dig a hole and you put a seed in it and you cover it up and you water it and all that and you want to grow this plant. It's very specific. Lots of attention to one thing. Sowing is when you grab a handful of seed, you scatter it like this. And the Word says, peacemakers who sow in peace, who sow peace into the soil, will raise a harvest of righteousness. That's the promise from the Word of God. So our job is to be peacemakers Romans twelve eighteen. as far as it is possible to, for you, as far as it's up to you, be at peace with everyone. Sow peace. Reap righteousness. That's God's promise. Let's bow our heads. This morning, I, as the band comes up, I, I just want to say that, you know, I know that some of you in here have probably been very hurt in relationships. Some of you have been hurt in church to the point that maybe you, you thought that you would never go to church again. Some of you have issues right now that you're dealing with that maybe, maybe you need to address somebody and you haven't. Or maybe you need to forgive somebody and you've not been willing to. Maybe you know that you have something to ask forgiveness for. But in some way, God's got something specific on your mind or on your heart today. And I just want to beg you, please, don't leave here today without doing something about it. If you walk out of this room and you don't deal with whatever God's laid on your heart, then the likelihood that you will deal with it after you leave this place is very slim. So I'm asking you right now, the front is open here. If you need to come and pray, whatever God's got on your heart, come deal with it today. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day3Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day3Church. Experience a new day in your life.